you make a certain kind of movie because that's the way you see things. And these images keep reoccurring again and again in your movies. And that's what makes you who you are. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is a woman trapped in the body of a film critic, my lovely wife Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. A woman trapped in the body of a film critic. Okay, this bodes well. Continue. (laughs) Were you going to say hello? Oh, hi. (laughs) On today's episode, Nakia and I are sitting down for her first viewing of Brian De Palma's provocative thriller, Dressed to Kill, which celebrates its 40th anniversary this week. So first, Nikki, I think we should probably acknowledge that this is not the movie we announced we were doing at the end of our last episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we said we were going to watch Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. And for the record, we did watch we did. Taxi Driver. Nikia, what did you think of Taxi Driver? <laughs> um, generally, I thought it was a good film. Uh-huh. Kudos to you, Mr. Scorsese. <laughs> uh, I, but I, I did not have anything particularly interesting to say about Taxi Driver. Yeah, so we sort of agreed after we watched it that we didn't think it was going to be a great conversation. It felt like it would have led us to rehash a lot of conversations we've had previously Mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, the new Hollywood era and Scorsese and toxic masculinity and the, you know, delusional resentments of the white American male, Mm -hmm. etc. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. We could have done it. It would have been okay. But it, I don't think either of us was particularly inspired. No. And we didn't think it was going to be much fun. No. So, frankly, I mean, given that the premise of this show is that you're watching movies that you, by definition, don't want to watch, mm-hmm. it's kind of amazing that doesn't happen more often. That's, yeah, that's a fair point. I usually, I mean, the the benefit is you, you choose shitty films. And so <laughs> I usually can spin, I can, you, you know, usually can summon something. I can weave something out it. of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, that one I was just like, you know, competent, well done. I have nothing to say about okay. it. Fair enough. (laughs) Okay, so rather than put out what we thought might be kind of a listless sort of episode, we're moving on to, coincidentally, one of Scorsese's good friends and contemporaries, Brian De Palma. Uh, I have, for the record, no confidence that you're going to like Dress to Kill more than you like Taxi Driver. Hmm. In fact, I think it would be a little weird if you did. Okay. But I, I am reasonably confident we'll find something to talk about with it. Okay. Dress to Kill is a movie I've ha- actually had on our list for a long time, and in fact, it's one that I end up thinking about every year when I'm trying to plan our annual Halloween movie marathon. Mm-hmm. Coming up again in a couple of months. I You're think excited? we're out. I no, think we're, we're done. We're not. We've watched all the Halloween films. <laughs> because it does tend to end up on listicles, like the scariest movies of all time. Uh, I don't actually find it that scary. I think it's not really a horror movie. I think it's more of a Hitchcockian suspense mm-hmm thriller. Uh, So we're watching it, you know, out of season, but today actually is its 40th anniversary. It was released 40 years ago today as we record. And De Palma is an interesting, fairly polarizing figure. Okay. People tend to either love him or hate him. I honestly haven't decided, which is one reason I wanted to do this. Mm -hmm. He's made some movies I like. 
like 1972's Sisters, 1981's Blowout, and 1987's The Untouchables, which is probably his biggest mainstream hit, along with uh, the first Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> but I think those were both sort of outliers that kind of work for higher movies. I'm not such a fan of 1983's Scarface, though I know it has a rabid cult following. You've seen that one? I don't think I've seen Scarface. You haven't seen Scarface? I don't think I have. Say hello to my little friend, you know? I mean, I've seen that scene, but yeah, I don't yeah. think I've actually okay. seen Scarface. I didn't like Casualties of War. I didn't like, I'm sure you haven't seen any of these, Snake Eyes. I thought Femme Fatale was kind of awful. And everyone on the planet thought Bonfire of the Vanities was a disaster. The one movie I love unreservedly, and I know you love it too, is 1976's Carrie. Yes, it's a classic. You like that movie? I love Carrie. <laughs> it's one of my, yes. What do, you, what do you love about Carrie? I mean, it's just sort of a perfect film. Uh, <laughs> so much of it. Those characters that just sort of live with you for the rest of your life, like you mm-hmm. just never forget Carrie's mom, yeah. you never forget Carrie, you never forget the scene of them saying, plug it up, <laughs> and throwing tampons at her in the shower. You're At least I consider her to be the hero of the film, and so I'm rooting for her even as she's, you know, kinetically throwing little kids off their bikes and burning <laughs> especially her. That, especially that, I think. You've uh, often said you wish you had Carrie I powers. I really do wish I had Carrie powers. And then, you know, burning her school down and so yeah i mean it's just that's an iconic film okay but it's a lot that movie is a lot if you think about it it is so i I guess my point is if you think about the stuff in there okay like how it opens that opening shower scene Mm -hmm. the totally bloody over the top prom night massacre in split screen right it's so perfect the scene of Carrie's mom being crucified with kitchen (laughs) utensils, (laughs) right? You could maybe see how Brian De Palma's sensibilities could go very wrong in other movies, right? So I think you can get a sense of, like, that's all, all of that Mm -hmm. is very Brian De Palma. Mm -hmm. And I think, I I agree, I think it totally works (laughs) in Carrie, but I think you can see how maybe that could be a problem (laughs) in some other things. That's fair. Okay. Okay. Owen Gleiberman at Variety wrote an article a couple of years ago that tracks more or less exactly with my experience of Brian De Palma. The article was called, Why I Can't Love Brian De Palma, Though I've Always Wished I Could. And he talks about seeing Carrie and being absolutely blown away by it and then wanting every other Brian De Palma movie to be that good. And none of them really are. Hmm. And he talks, he makes what I think is a a good observation. He talks about De Palma being part of that group of filmmakers, they were all friends, that included Scorsese, Coppola, Spielberg, and George Lucas. And he suggests that all of the other four had vision, Mm. and De Palma never really did. He said what De Palma had was a series of interlocking obsessions, which I think is true. And he talks about this. There's a there's a documentary called De Palma that's it's available on Netflix that's just him talking about his movies. And if you listen to him talk about his movies, you realize very quickly that he he thinks visually. He thinks in terms of big set pieces. Mm. He thinks of movie making as like technical challenges and what cool thing can I do and how can I structure this sequence. He thinks less, I think, in terms of story and mm. character mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you see it in all the reviews of his movies. Everybody's, you know, admiring the craft, but the plot doesn't make any sense and it's somewhat problematic. Um, I think I, I suspect he's very much one of those guys that's like, I'm not writing novels, I'm making movies. Right. Like, I'm making cinematic moments. In that sense, I kind of see him, and I don't know if he would cite 
as an influence. Actually, I think they're about the same age. Like Dario Argento. Mm -hmm. We've watched Suspiria, which you liked, and we watched Phenomenon. Which I did not. Which you did not like. But again, you can see sort of the same sensibilities at work. One of them at work. They are interesting to watch. And the other one it goes wrong, but is still fascinating. Yeah. Right? And I also think of him as sort of a predecessor of guys like Tarantino, Mm -hmm. who are, they're not making movies from life. They're making movies from movies. Right, right. You know what I mean? And the movies De Palma is primarily working from are Alfred Hitchcock movies. Mm. He's obsessed with Hitchcock. And what he has said is basically Hitchcock created this never-before-seen grammar of filmmaking that no one else really picked up on and ran with. And that's part of what he is doing, Mm -hmm. at least according to him. (laughs) And you see it in his movies. I mean, Dress to Kill is pretty unmistakably a riff on Psycho. Okay. The De Palma movie I saw most frequently as a teenager, because it was on HBO a lot, I think, and it had a lot of nude Melanie Griffith in it, is uh, Body Double, which is mostly his take on Rear Window with some vertigo thrown in. <laughs> okay. He made a movie called Obsession that was very vertigo. So he's, he's done these sort of riffs of Hitchcock, only pervier and more gratuitously violent. And so, getting back to where we started, I've always kind of dismissed him as that, as he rips off Hitchcock, and he's got kind of a pervy sensibility. (laughs) Okay. But then over the years, I keep reading these articles by people I respect that start that way, start with saying, you know, a lot of people unfairly dismiss Brian De Palma as nothing more than an objectifying perv who rips off Hitchcock. I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's how I've always thought of him. Maybe there's something there I'm missing. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason I wanted to dip back into one of his biggest and most famous movies. Uh, what do you What do you know about Dress to Kill? Zero. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. I never, I'd heard, never of heard of it until you brought it up. So <laughs> Okay. So this will all be new to you. Yes. Well, let me tell you a little bit, just to try to sell it to you here. Uh, Michael Koreski, introducing the film for the Criterion Collection, says, This film is a minefield of potential offense, with its horrific butchery of a middle-aged woman, its full frontal images of naked women shot like softcore pornography, and, especially at a moment when studio output was being accused of containing reactionary responses to second-wave feminism, it was bound to incite some anger. And he doesn't even mention the transphobia, which is pretty central to the plot, and some racism that's more incidental, but you're going to pick up on it. Sorry, incidental racism? (laughs) Okay. As as opposed to being central to the plot. A side of racism. A A soupçon of racism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Continue. And this movie was hated by many, many people. The nonprofit organization Women Against Violence and Pornography in Media actually organized a march against it in San Francisco in 1980, dispersing pamphlets calling for mass protests and boycotts. If this film succeeds, killing women may become the greatest turn-on of the 80s, it warned in all wow. capital letters. Have, have I sold it to you yet? Are yeah, you excited I'm, yet? I'm in now, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so we'll we'll talk about some of the other reactions to it, good and bad, after we watch the movie. But I wanted to share one perspective up front before we watch it, because I think it's useful. This is Pauline Kael, who absolutely loved this movie in a way that I don't think anyone else has. Okay. You love Pauline Kael. I do love Pauline Kael. <laughs> I don't always agree with Pauline Kael, but I always enjoy Pauline Kael. Uh, she called it one of the wittiest suspense comedies ever made. <laughs> Which is not a description or even a genre designation that I think anyone else would use. 
She said, you know you're being toyed with. De Palma has perfected near surreal poetic voyeurism, the stylized expression of a blissfully dirty mind. He underlines the fact that voyeurism is integral to the nature of the movies. So as we watch it, I think this is what I want to think about. I think it's something we can talk about afterwards. To what extent are we just being fucked with? Mm -hmm. Or to what extent is he riffing on movies, riffing on objectification, riffing on the voyeurism, Mm -hmm. the violence of Mm -hmm. movies? Or is he enjoying it for its own sake? Or both. Or both. Could be both. Absolutely could be both. He could be enjoying it because he's actually into it, but then hiding behind this, like, oh, I'm doing something meta right now. (laughs) Right, exactly. You're not. Like the people who say, you know, I'm not really racist, I'm making fun of... I'm making fun of racist. No, you're actually just racist. Right, so, and I don't, again, I'm not sure where I come down on this yet. I haven't seen this in a long time, but I am looking forward to doing so. Okay. What what are you expecting at this point based on what I've told you? Um, I don't I really don't know what to expect and I so I have not seen very many De Palma films. I enjoyed Carrie. Uh I believe he directed Carlito's Way. Oh yes, he did. Which I have not seen, but you have. Which I actually enjoy because I, I have a thing for Al Pacino, but we have to be honest about the fact that it is a problem that it is Al Pacino <laughs> playing a Puerto Rican uh <laughs> Like, well, drug kingpin. Well, I think crime. that was after he'd done Scarface, in which he's Cuban. And yeah. I think he's right. doing, like, basically the same yeah, accent. sort of. Um, right next to, like, Luis Guzman, which is just odd. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. I So, I haven't seen that. Is that overtly violent over uh, the top, or is that more subdued? Is it more subdued? It, I didn't, I don't recall, so I haven't watched it in a very long time, but I don't recall feeling like, oh, that's really a hyper-violent okay. film. Because, um, like, Scarface, in addition to all the shootouts, actually has a scene in which a guy takes a chainsaw to right. a guy and yeah. stuff. It's, it's very yeah. violent. So, I don't remember anything like that, but I, again, I haven't okay. seen it in a long time. And it's m- mostly about him trying to sort of have a clean exit out of the life of crime, and he just wants to mm-hmm. go and be with, um, what's her name? It's not Jane Fonda. Bridget. Bridget, Bridget Fonda. Bridget Fonda, okay. I think. Um, Next Generation Fonda. Sure, yeah. And they just, you know, want to go and be in love together. Um, Though I have to say, Al is certainly closer to Jane Fonda's age. But he has a lot of, like, um, what was that stuff called? Like, it's, it's a lot of Just for Men action going on, because it's a very dark hair, dark beard sort of thing. Um, okay. But there's this great moment where... He comes to her apartment, and she's not going to unlock the door, and she's basically like, you're going to have to break down the door to get to me, which is, you know, we could talk about how that's, like, women really desire men who are violent and who are, you know, transgressing in some way. That might come up in this movie as well. And so, yeah, it is a little bit interesting to see Al Pacino very much in his mid to late 40s, early 50s, (laughs) like, banging down and breaking down an apartment door to get to not Jane Fonda, so... That's hot. It actually is. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I know of okay. Palma. So I don't, I don't know what to expect. Those right. are, Carrie and that are very different films. Mm-hmm. So have you seen any of the other ones? No, uh, I didn't think so. I don't think so. Well, I'm, I'm actually curious to see what you're gonna, because you are. It's also basically a slasher horror movie, mm-hmm. and you sort of come from that tradition to a certain extent. I come from that tradition. You come, you. You grew up on a lot of those. My mom really enjoys horror, yes. So I am versed in it. I don't... I bet your mom has seen this movie. She might have. I can ask her. She may have seen it. But yeah, it's not... It's definitely not the thing that I sit down to watch. Right. But I have seen a lot. So (laughs) what that does mean, though, is that it it takes a fair amount to offend me in that space. Mm, And like like I don't... It is what it is. Um, The other stuff, the transphobia and the racism, that's the stuff that will piss me off. Right. I mean, you know, you want to chainsaw off somebody's head, that's whatever. No problem with that. You know, I'm sure there was a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so. They had it coming. 
Okay. <laughs> Dress to Kill is currently streaming free for subscribers on Amazon Prime. It's also available to rent for most of the other major services, and it is playing this month on Showtime. Now, I think, I haven't checked, but I think those are probably the R-rated version that was released by the studio over De Palma's strong objections. Uh, we, on the other hand, are going to be watching his preferred director's cut, available from the Criterion Collection, which contains the stuff they made him cut to avoid an X rating. Oh, wow. The differences are not substantial. It's not like there were scenes that were cut. We're talking about a few seconds shot here and there that mm -hmm. is more explicit, or a few seconds of dialogue that's more explicit. Mm. But I think, you know, in all fairness, we should watch it the way God and Brian De Palma intended. It doesn't sound like God had anything to do with this, <laughs> but okay. So let's go watch Dress to Kill. Do you find me attractive? Of course. Would you want to sleep with me? Yes. Then why don't you? Because I love my wife, and it isn't worth jeopardizing my marriage. I shouldn't have been so rude. Thank you for picking up. Mm. Master of the Macabre, who shocked audiences everywhere with Sisters, Carrie, Obsession, and The Fury, now invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. <coughs> dressed to Kill, Michael Caine, Angie Dickinson, Nancy Allen, Dressed to Kill, Murder, Made to Order. And we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched Dressed to Kill. Nakia, as Andrew Saris writes in The Village Voice, when Dress to Kill opened, people either hated it or enjoyed it. No one was completely indifferent. In fact, he and his fellow Village Voice critic Jay Hoberman had side-by-side -side reviews that week. Hoberman's review was entitled Dazzling, and he called it the most voluptuously crafted, formally dazzling movie to come out of Hollywood since Apocalypse Now, a tightly wrought, near-perfect mechanism. Right beside that review was Saris's review with the headline, Derivative. Saris called it a shamefully straight steal from Psycho and a piece of decoratively wrapped triviality and titillation. John Simon in the National Review said what Dress to Kill dispenses liberally is sophomoric, softcore pornography, vulgar manipulation of the emotions for mere sensation, salacious but inept dialogue that is a cross between comic strip Freudianism and sniggering double entendres, and a plot line so full of holes to be at best a dotted line. 
Roger Ebert, on the other hand, gave Dress to Kill three stars. Dress to Kill is an exercise in style, not narrative. It would rather look and feel like a thriller than make sense. Its plot has moments of ludicrous implausibility, but De Palma has so much fun with the conventions of the thriller that we forgive him and go along. Nakia, what did you think of Dress to Kill? <laughs> um, I thought it was ludicrous. <laughs> in a... Good way? That's what I haven't decided yet. I guess I lean more towards a good way because I do think that there were moments of, I don't know that I would say genius, but <laughs> where De Palma's craft as a director were best put on display. Mm -hmm. It's a very well-made movie. It's a very well-made movie, and there really are some scenes that are just stylistically well, amazingly well done. Jay Hoberman, and this is the good review, he called it a shallow masterpiece. That's, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, I didn't love or hate it. Uh, it. It is just fundamentally a silly film. And I don't know, you know, at the top of the show you were talking about there was a lot of critique, both by film critics, but also just... The public. The public and activists, et cetera, around yeah. sort of the violence and the misogyny and, and the objectification of women. All of that I can be kind of fine with, um, <laughs> which probably says more about me than anything. I think what sort of elevates this movie to something that's like, oh, we maybe need to talk about this a little bit more is the transphobia piece. Yeah, Everything and obviously else, like, we're going to have to talk about We've done this. That, like, right? I, like, this is not a new thing. And to a certain extent, you can excuse. Well, not excuse. You can you can cover a lot of that by saying he is making some sort of critique on society. And it is a bit tongue-in-cheek. The transphobia piece, I do not yeah. think that that is the case. Like, I really think that that's... Um, and what's funny, none of those protests were about that. Mm -hmm. And none of the angry reviews were about that either. Right. That was not even on the table yeah. in mainstream society. Now, I've got, and we'll get to later, a couple of pieces that were contemporary with the movie mm -hmm. that were written from trans critics. Mm -hmm. So it's not like nobody noticed, but as far as, you know, Roger Ebert was not going to write about right, that. Right, Okay, well, how, how, would you like to, how would you like to talk about this? I don't even know. Shallow masterpiece. The plot is ridiculous. <laughs> like, it really is just ludicrous. So I don't know that any of the acting was particularly great. Mm, you know. No. So my only real sort of takeaways are set pieces. And right. I think Which, this, as I said in the beginning, is right. how De Palma conceived yes. movies. So the scene in the Metropolitan Museum of Art is just it's it's amazingly it's directed. So it's just good. well done. If if this movie was just the first half that hour, be, yes. it would be yeah. a legit masterpiece, yeah. I think. I think that would be fair. Except for <laughs> the first five minutes. Jesus. <laughs> I can't. So now I'm now I'm thinking about how many of his films have that like soft focus, slow motion opening. It's, it's definitely like one of his pseudo porn. And I keep using the word fetish, and I don't. I, it's I'm not even using it ironically. Yeah. I seriously think it is. But it's like I think a there's fetish. a similar opening to Carrie. Is that that slow Carrie motion, has very the exact, soft focus. almost the exact same opening. <laughs> So. With that gauzy, mm -hmm. slow-mo push-in on yeah. a woman showering and touching her body. Vigorously masturbating. While the, you know, sort of light music plays. Yeah. And, and her oblivious husband is there shaving. And, and then so, in Carrie, right. it's interrupted by the blood. Yes. Right? That's where it turns from this sort of dreamlike mm -hmm. to a nightmare. thing into a nightmare. Right. And here we have similar. But horrifying. <laughs> like that, it, it's just... <laughs> So it's just a weird ass scene. So it is, I don't know the actress's name. Angie Dickinson. Yes. So it's Angie Dickinson in the shower, 
masturbating to her husband, who is obliviously just sort of shaving right. at the bathroom counter. The bathroom is full of steam. It's all very So problem like. number one. Yeah. Andy Dickinson is 40 40s. Yeah. Maybe 45 <laughs> here. I'm not sure. And this is in the 80s before 40-year-olds all looked like Jennifer Lopez. So the body that is used in this scene... <laughs> Oh, that that didn't fool you? Is not Andy Dickinson's body. <laughs> I was going to tell you that, but I guess apparently It's you, very clearly you not Andy Dickinson. to that already. It's like a 16-year-old. <laughs> it's very... It's a... a, a I nubile. I don't, I don't have her name, but it's it was she was a penthouse model, yes. So, if you're going to cast a woman in her 40s, and her narrative really is about this doubting of her own sexuality mm. and whether or not she is desirable, then use a fucking 40-year-old person's body. Yeah, I I don't I honestly don't know whether that was her decision. It, it absolutely could have been. Or, what I'm saying is, then yeah, use a no, body double right. yeah, of I, her age, right? Because to me, then that goes along with that narrative of like, okay, this is a woman who's in her 40s. She was probably considered extremely attractive and desirable as a younger woman, and now is having doubts mainly because her husband fucking sucks. But <laughs> then let's like let that be the whole narrative of right. like it doesn't make sense for her to have this face and then that body and be like, oh, I don't know that I'm sexy. You have a sixteen year old body. Like, what, what, I don't understand what the question is. So I just That was that was first of all. Okay. That was first of all. And then you have this very abrupt <laughs> sexual assault where a man just appears in the shower with her and then vigorously assaults her while her husband is just sort of, he sort of glances and looks and then keeps shaving. And these, just for the record, these were, this was one of the scenes that had to be trimmed to avoid Because they paid a lot of attention to her pubis. Yes, they did. It was a lot of focus. And then when the guy comes in, he literally picks her up by by her her... vagina. Yes. And Mm -hmm. yes, so it's, I can see why that would be trending. And all of that is actually in the R version, but there's like a few shots that are cut Mm. out that it's slightly To make it more tasteful. Mm -hmm. Right. But they didn't cut all of that out. So anyway, that's all a dream sequence. So, you know. Right. Okay. Well, so here, so coming back to the question of her body. Mm -hmm. Is that excused at all by the fact that this is her fantasy Mm, sequence? That's a good point. It's framed as, theoretically, a lot of this is the female gaze. Mm -hmm. Now, we should probably talk, it's the male interpretation of a female female fantasy. Right, exactly. So, yeah, okay, yeah. So, maybe that's how she would like to see her body in her fantasies. But, again, I just... Because that's all still the sort of dream part. Right. And then the smash cut to reality is... Her husband... (laughs) Just... Humping away, humping away at her. her. And, like, don't have bad sex on YSL sheets. That's just sad. <laughs> like, you went through all the trouble to get YSL sheets and you're having shitty sex on them. That's that's disappointing. Yeah, so he's just, like, sounding like um, Forrest Gump's doctor. And... <laughs> but she's doing her best to, like, fake it till you make it, sister. Right, and she says that to the shrink yeah. later. She says, I, you know... I moaned as if I was feeling pleasure. that's what men want to hear is you, right. you want to hear me moaning, so I will sit here and moan for you. But yeah, that was just sad. And then I saw the YSL sheets, and I was just even sadder. And I was just <laughs> bummer. I didn't, I have to confess, I didn't identify the sheets. Well, the, the YSL Yves logo was on the pillow sham. And I was like, oh shit, those are YSL sheets that you're this having is, shitty sex The rest of us are looking because at Because the sex is bad. So yeah. the sex isn't entertaining right. me, so I have to find entertainment <laughs> elsewhere. <laughs> Anyway, so this is what happens when I watch a movie that doesn't make sense is I can't even talk about it in a way that makes sense. So I'm just going to go by scene. So okay. that was the shower scene. And we yeah. talked about the problems and with that. the bad sex scene. The bad sex scene. And then I think the but other... Okay, so what we've established here is that this is a sexually unfulfilled woman. Yes. Okay. Right. 
That's basically our motivation for that character. Mm-hmm. That's all we get. Mm-hmm. She's okay. looking for some affirmation. She's looking for some passion. And she's not getting it at home. Right. So she has a therapist, of course, because... But we have a brief scene with her son. What is there to say about that? Well, we shouldn't skip over it because watching it, I, re- I noticed Andrew Dickinson has exactly two scenes of dialogue in this movie. It's the scene with her son and the scene with the therapist. Mm. And that's it. The rest of it is there's no dialogue. I did not. Okay. That's interesting. Her two most important relationships there? Yeah, sure. I guess so. <laughs> so now we meet her son, mm-hmm. who's a total nerd. Mm-hmm. This character was, according to De Palma, based on De Palma completely. He was a science nerd. The whole computer thing, that was him. Mm-hmm. And the stalking thing mm-hmm. was him, too, because he said his father was having an affair. And he actually followed his father around with a camera at that age and took pictures. So it was like protecting that's his mother, awesome. thing, same kind of thing. So that's all, you know. Oedipal, weird thing. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Carry on. Uh, yeah, so then she goes to the therapist in her all-cream outfit. It's a very Brett look, Brett girl look. There's some color stuff with clothing there's, going there's on some definitely some color. There's a purity there. Yeah. There's a, a demonstration of wealth. Mm-hmm. Anybody that's wearing all white or all cream has enough money to buy things when they get dirty. Well, that bathroom was pretty nice. The bathroom was I mean, it had like very nice, yes. Room to have like 400 cacti so in So it's very clear she's very comfortable yes. in her life, despite the fact that her husband is... <laughs> Shit in bed. <laughs> so, yes, she goes to see Michael Caine, Dr. Elliot, mm-hmm. who is her therapist, and basically propositions him, really. She's like, Maybe there's something wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with you. Do you find me attractive? Of course. Would you want to sleep with me? Yes. Then why don't you? Yeah, I had shitty sex with my husband. Do you find me attractive? Do you want to fuck me? And he very calmly says, I do. <laughs> but I'm not but going I won't to. Because I'm a doctor and I'm married. And it's mm-hmm. very, you know, clinical and repressed. And so she goes out to, you know, cruise at the museum. Do you think she goes with that intention? I think she's open to it. Is it a conscious thing? I think she's open to it. Okay. I think she is definitely looking for, she's looking to be noticed. She's looking to be seen as a desirable person. But yes, so I think one of the more interesting aspects of this film is the 10 minutes or so that's filmed in the... Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's nine minutes long. Metropolitan Museum. That's Park. a brilliant sequence. It's really it's well done. It's so good. It's really well done. There's a lot of different layers there of voyeurism and being chased and chasing mm-hmm. and... Right, she becomes the stalker mm-hmm. for a little bit there, at least, and then she yeah. gets him to follow her, and they're playing this sort of cat-and-mouse game through the museum, this stranger that has, you know, taken notice of and attracted the attention of. Mm-hmm. He looks like Jonestown. Um, <laughs> so I would not have wanted his attention, but she desperately did. I was e- I was even thinking about that, because so much of this movie is about watching. Yes. It's, you know, it's all mirrors and windows and cameras. Well, and, and even people watching. I mean, at the museum, yeah. she was, as much as she was looking at the art, she was looking right. at the people. She's looking around at all the other couples mm-hmm. and all the families and things. Um, she sees a little girl escape her parents, which is this kind of, you know, giving into your own mm-hmm. impulses and sort of escaping morality thing, this little thing mm-hmm. happening over there. Uh, but he's got these very dark sunglasses on, so you can't see his eyes. So again, it's all like female gaze. It's all mm. her lusting after him. It's not really the other way around. Mm-hmm. He's sort of the object. At first. Right. Yes. And she takes off her glove with her 
off her left hand, revealing a ridiculously large wedding ring. Does she do that on purpose? I think she does that on purpose. Okay. But then she looks down and she's like, oh shit, he saw my wedding ring and maybe that, because he then leaves. Well, that's, yeah, that's a weird one. Yeah. I guess my read is she did it on purpose, but she wanted him to know it's okay, I'm married, so this is just a... Just a playful thing. Just a one, or mm. just like a, a hookup. You mm-hmm. don't have to worry. It's just mm-hmm. no strings attached. Yeah. And then he gets up and walks away, and that's where I think she goes like, oh damn, maybe I... Scared him off. off. She drops her glove. Yeah. And it's one of the three things, I think, in the film that she leaves behind. That she loses, yes. So she drops the glove and she walks to chase after him. And the way it's filmed, it's just this tracking shot and you're following her through the corridors of the Mm -hmm. museum. And it's both exciting but also ominous because De Palma has made it so that you don't quite know what's around every corner, but it's a museum. It's a totally open public space and and should be theoretically safe. But I think it's the combination of the score and just the pacing of it. It starts to speed up as she's chasing him. It's shot almost like a horror movie. It is. It it sort of changes the space around them. mm -hmm. But it's really, really well done. And they just continue to sort of switch roles throughout. So she will be chasing him and then she gets to him and then starts to sort of question whether or not she should be doing it and sort of gets scared away. And then he starts to chase her until they find themselves outside the museum. Right. He's in the cab. He's sitting in a cab. He waves her glove. glove. And we're not sure what she's going to do. She might just flirt a little bit and walk away, but he yanks her Pretty into the cab. Pretty much snatches her into the cab and right. they go at it in a cab. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> intensely. This is where she loses her second article yeah. of clothing, panties in the which cab. is the panties on the floor of the yeah. cab. Later she'll look for them. She's not good at trysts. Remember. Part of being good at trysts is you got to keep your shit together. Yeah. You, you really need to have your underwear because that's a, that's a red flag when you go home, but... <laughs> Is yeah. it? Yeah. In your experience? <laughs> yeah. Where'd your panties go? Uh, uh, uh. Oh, I guess I left them somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And again, the voyeurism, the cab driver is... Enjoying the show. Overtly yes. watching them in the in the rear view mirror. Yes. And they have no shame. And she realizes that and she's like, okay, go I guess it. that's it. Just gonna go <laughs> Just for gonna it. Just gonna go for it. And so they go back to this gentleman's place and she's there apparently for like hours because it's nighttime by the time she's getting ready to go yeah. home. And again, there's no dialogue in this no, entire sequence. Yeah, it's all, all silence yeah. other than the score. She wakes up, sort of puts herself together... Sort of. <laughs> and goes to write him a like, oh, this was fun sort of note. And conveniently <laughs> finds some test results from the uh, New York Department well, it's of a, Health. It's a letter, right, a letter from the Department yeah. of Health. That basically says, in bold, underlined, exclamation mark, <laughs> you have a venereal disease. <laughs> Which I don't know that that's usually how the Department of Health communicates. <laughs> and it, it looked like a letter that was basically like, here's all the people you need to call, dude. Um, right, <laughs> so right. That's what it was, yes. But it's I, I still feel like it's it's inappropriate to use exclamation marks in that letter. I feel like you you know, you have venereal disease, you need to inform your partners. It's it's much more You have syphilis and right? gonorrhea. It was just bold underlined exclamation marks. Like, that seems excessive. But this is and to me, this is where I see Pauline Kale comic calling this a comedy. Yes, I do think that because that is, it is yes. almost a satire yes. of these sort of Punishing women uh, for being sexually played. active. Right, exactly. Yes. yes, yes. Yeah, like the instant she cheats. She's got herpes. First, she finds out she has VD. Yeah. <laughs> and then worse things yes. happen. So that's what I'm saying. That part of the film I can see as being like, oh, this is, you know, reflecting back on society's right. moralistic codes and things. So that totally get it. Fine. It is absurd. <laughs> 
But then, yes, so she leaves. She's in the elevator. There's a weird little girl in the elevator. Yes, a mother and a little girl get on the elevator, and the little girl is just staring at her like she knows that Dickinson has VD (laughs) and is just, like, (laughs) judging her to death. And her mom keeps whispering, it's not polite to stare, and she continues to stare. So I was, yeah, that was odd. But in the meantime, she realizes that she has left her wedding ring. Right. That's the third thing. And so it's like these layers yeah. of her protection from the world and, and the just, symbols of her not purity and all not of it. She's, like, she's why losing. are you taking off your ring? Like, he knows you're married. <laughs> anyway, so she goes back up in the elevator to go get the ring, which I don't even know how that conversation would have went. But um, <laughs> the elevator opens, and she is confronted by... We'll we'll call her we'll call her Bobby. Bobby in a black trench coat right. and black it's shades large, and blonde hair. Blonde woman in sunglasses. Wielding a very shiny straight <laughs> razor and proceeds to slash her up. So this is now the third scene that I think is really well done because it takes the scene from Psycho in the shower and transposes it into an elevator. Yep. So you get the same sort of enclosed space where you you see your protagonist being attacked really violently and yep. just excessive blood. and Very graphic. Very there, graphic. Again, there were a few shots that were cut here yeah. to avoid the X. And so then again, you get in the same way that you have Carrie in that pristine, very simple pink prom gown that is then just <laughs> drenched in blood. You have Dickinson's character in this, again, very clean, very luxe, sort of white, beigeous outfit that is then just destroyed with, yeah. with blood. But yeah, so she just gets slashed for like seven floors. And then <laughs> <laughs> the elevator opens up. Dickinson is on the floor and we have... Nancy Allen. Nancy Allen. And As Liz. Some dude. Right. And they see her... On the floor, the dude immediately <laughs> furthering your runs me- your away. Men are, trash. men are fucking trash. Just left. <laughs> like, nope, I'm out of here. I'll take the stairs. Booked it. Didn't say a word. <laughs> and, but uh, Liz is standing there with the silent scream. That is very, you know, 80s horror film. Mm-hmm. And she goes to open the elevator door, and this is. Probably, you know, the best part of that scene is that mm-hmm. you then see the security mirror yeah. in the elevator. So we're seeing it through Liz's eyes and the security mirror. So there's all these like refracting perspectives. Yeah. Even, the razor, Even the razor is shining like, light in her eyes. And it's really yeah, the incredible. Razor's mirror, yeah. the walls are mirrored. The, it's really, really yeah. well done. And then we get this. It's I I love that scene. It's it's amazing. This to me is better than Psycho mm-hmm. because we have this sort of literal passing of the narrative, passing of the point of mm-hmm. view mm-hmm. from Angie Dickinson to Nancy Allen. Mm-hmm. They lock eyes. Then we're seeing from Nancy Allen's point of view. There's the thing where she literally takes the, the razor. razor, sort of like taking the danger, taking the narrative away. from from it's like completely passes that narrative over mm-hmm. i mean yeah obviously the whole thing is psycho is like janet lee the surprise of killing yeah. janet lee when you thought she was the protagonist but that transition is done so directly here from one character to the other mm-hmm. i love it mm-hmm. it's really well done okay so let's let's talk about liz then okay this is this is now our hero we thought angie liz dickinson our, was our hero liz is now our hero were you expecting that I mean, it was. Once you, you said know? that it riffed off of Psycho, I assumed that there was going to be some surprise death of okay. a blonde, more than likely. Um, so I ruined that for you. No, I mean, it, <laughs> I don't know how anybody could ruin anything in this film, really. It's just, uh, so no, you did not ruin it for me. Liz. 
So Liz is a uh, sex worker. <laughs> yes, as we discover when they go to the police station. Right. So that makes it less surprising that her John just booked it and didn't. Yes. Right. <laughs> show any concern. I thought they were like yeah. a couple or something. I was like, oh, that's a shitty boyfriend. Yeah. Um, but no, it was just the John that was like, oh, shit, I can't be caught with a hooker. Basically, right. is what they would have called her. So she's a sex worker and she seems to be a very ambitious person. Um, right, we hear her getting stock she's tips getting stock from her tips. John. She's trying to get that money. She's buying paintings yeah. and basically saying when that artist dies, it's going to be worth a whole lot of money. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Liz. <laughs> I, I love Liz. Until later. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so she's, I mean, she's an interesting character because then it's this this sort of Madonna whore juxtaposition that right, trying exactly. to do. Like you had the married middle-aged wife who was unhappy versus this, you know, younger, very sexually realized young woman right. who has sort of no shame in right. her it's desires. Like, it's and, like Kate was an amateur yeah. in this whole world mm-hmm. of sex and Liz is a professional. Yeah. It's almost like, again, that passing of the narrative. It's mm-hmm. like, Liz can handle this. Liz mm-hmm. is, you know, mm-hmm. more capable of existing in this world than innocent Kate was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we go to the we go to the police station. We meet uh, Dennis Franz is sharply dressed. He looks like he just came detective. off the shoot of uh, a scene of the Deuce. Like I'm just like, why are you just like a porn star? <laughs> well, that's about the same era. But it, it, like you're a cop. <laughs> Why do you have 18 gold chains and a leather jacket and your shirt is unbuttoned way too far? It's just, I don't Like, why are you dressed like you're in a porno? I, I want to dress like that. No. I want that whole no. outfit. No. I want to wear it no. every day. No. I need some gold chains no. and gold bracelets. He has a lot of, that outfit says I have VD letters in my drawer. <laughs> That's what that outfit is. You open that person's side door drawer and there's letters about, you got VD. <laughs> Call your people. Yes, yeah, so Dennis Franz playing the gruff, Chicago-accented, it sounded like. Uh, I don't have a good ear for accents. That could have been a it's, New York It's not bronze. a very Chicago to me. It was just like, um, so I didn't get how he was supposed to be New York, but whatever. Um, but he's basically sees Liz and is like, oh, you're a sex worker, and so you're somehow involved in this, and they found you with a knife, so... You must have done you're it. a suspect. Let's face it, you're a whore, huh? Oh, a Park Avenue whore, but you're still a whore. Now... Who are you fucking? Fuck you. No, fuck you. Hey, you're no witness. You're a suspect. Clearly she's not. Clearly not. But he's also not interested in really doing any work on this case because he's basically (laughs) like, yeah, you go figure it out and let me know. If not, I'm just going to arrest you and say that you did it. So he's not a whole lot of help. Uh, Peter is there with his (laughs) high-tech listening listening equipment Uh bugging the detective's office. Mm-hmm. Dr. Elliot is there giving his Statement. evidence yeah. to the police. So all, all the major characters are sort of in one place for this scene. Mm-hmm. And actually the, the crime is solved more or less right away because then Dr. Elliot goes back to his office and gets a message from Bobby, mm-hmm. one of his patients. Mm-hmm. Bobby is a patient or a former patient. Bobby is supposedly trying to get trying there. To, right confirmation surgery Mm -hmm. but bobby also says oh hey i took your razor (laughs) Mm -hmm. basically confesses to the whole crime so the whole the whole crime is solved we now know it was bobby it was bobby Mm -hmm. uh dr elliot doesn't tell the police this no he is leaning on 
patient doctor confidentiality, <laughs> which I feel like goes out the window once a murder has been created. I, I think so. There's a, there's a, a murder question throughout committed. this entire movie about, you know, I mean, forgetting what we, and we're not really trying to avoid spoilers here. We know what's going yeah. on. But even forgetting what we know about Dr. Elliot, there's a question as far as the cop goes and Peter and Liz, this big elaborate plan to break into Dr. Elliot's office and steal his records. Mm-hmm. They probably could have just asked him. Asked him for Bobby's information? Yes. Like, well, we have reason to believe one of your patients might be the murderer. I don't think he would have given Bobby up. If, if he'd been just a normal, decent, good doctor, I, I think, I feel like that would have been the first thing they tried. And then it would have been break <laughs> into his office. And well, But that presumes that he wasn't also Bobby. I mean, so right. I'm okay. saying, but they don't know that. Right. They have no reason to be suspicious of him. Mm-hmm. As far as they know, he's just this nice, helpful doctor. I see. Okay. Why didn't they just go to him straight and say, "Dude, we think one of your patients murdered my mother. How about helping us out?" Yeah. Yeah. No, they don't do that because this the movie plot doesn't. Make doesn't any sense. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's let's talk about Doctor Elliot, I guess. Sure, Doctor Elliot appears to be Sir Michael Caine. Yeah. Appears to be a legitimate, respectable Upper East Side, Upper West Side, whatever those neighborhoods are in New York. That means money. Um, therapist seems to be very professional and is really mindful of, you know, boundaries with his clients. All very good things that you want in a therapist. He is also... I don't even know I how wish to they talk could see this. the faces you're making. Because I, I don't even know how to talk about it. He's also <laughs> struggling with his sexual identity. <laughs> But see, okay, because this is the problem, right? Okay. Because he's not actually struggling with his... The way that they have framed it, and this is the problem, like, this is the big problem with this film. All this other shit, ridiculous, fine, you you can write it off as a comedy. They have positioned transgender identity... They have equated transgender identity with mental illness. Yes. And so that's where the shit just goes with, off like, the rails. Dissociative right. personality And that's why I don't even know how to talk about him because I'm like, I'm not even, because I don't want to contribute to that. Like, <laughs> if I were to say it straight in the way that the film says it, it would be, well, Dr. Elliot uh-huh. is at war with himself. <laughs> There's a woman Which is living. at the end of the movie how that psychiatrist <laughs> lays it out, right? It's like, basically, it's a Jekyll and Hyde Exactly. Thing. What's wrong with that guy anyway? He was a transsexual. What? A transsexual. About to make the final step, but his male side couldn't let him do it. Male side? There was Dr. Elliot, and there was Bobby. Bobby came to me to get psychiatric approval for a sex reassignment operation. I thought he was unstable, and Elliot confirmed my diagnosis. Opposite sexes inhabiting the same body. The sex change operation was to resolve the conflict. But as much as Bobby tried to get it, Elliot blocked it. So Bobby got even. By killing Mrs. Miller. Yes, she aroused Elliot, just as you did, Miss Blake. You mean when Elliot got turned on, Bobby took over? Yes, it was like uh, Bobby's red alert. Elliot's penis became erect, and Bobby took control, trying to kill anyone that made Elliot masculinely sexual. And that's such a problem. And it's not, it's, you cannot talk about transgender identity in that way of like, oh, there's this monster inside of me that comes out when it's like this. No, that is not what that is. That is not what transgender identity is about. There isn't this like battle of 
Anyway, <laughs> um, so that's why I'm a little struggling with how to talk about it. Because so the movie positions it that his yes. male side is at war with his, with female, his female side. side. And every time his male side becomes aroused, his female side is pissed off and murders the object of that <laughs> desire. Right. Fucking ridiculous <laughs> right. and dangerous <Yes>. narrative. <laughs> So that's Dr. Elliot, and we're going to put that over there. <laughs> I don't think we can put it over I there. I don't. Cannot talk about it. And then I just, I can't. Go ahead. I can't with Dr. Elliot. Go ahead. That character is such a problem. Let's just lay it out. That's such a dangerous narrative, and you cannot, there's no way to do that. And maybe it's like we just have not evolved enough, but there's no way to tell that story in a way that is tongue-in-cheek or that is meta, because it's like, no, no, that's actually how you feel, and that's actually how a lot of people feel about transgender folks. This idea that they are somehow this lurking danger that's looking for the opportunity to, you know, harm someone. It's just... Yeah. And I don't think it was meta. I don't think it's any more sophisticated no. than that. Brian De Palma has said that he saw that same interview with Nancy Hunt that, mm-hmm. on the Donahue mm-hmm. show that mm-hmm. plays in the movie. Mm-hmm. And basically, that's where he got the idea for this movie. And he took from that this woman trapped in a man's body and thought, oh, that's a great idea. It's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde type of thing. And that's that's where this idea for this character came from. Mm-hmm. Right, but he doesn't have the range to tell that story. <laughs> so he, he shouldn't have touched it. And it's also, this is also a, just like, and I don't know if this was intended, but it makes you, it seems also to be a little bit of an indictment of the the mental health system and, and, and therapists in particular, because Dr. Elliot is trash therapist and just like that should just <laughs> not be a thing. Um, but then he goes to speak to a quote-unquote sort of rival therapist that Bobby has since gone to see. Right. Because Dr. Elliot was blocking Bobby's attempts to go through with gender confirmation surgery. Right. So she started seeing this other doctor. Dr. Levy. Dr. Levy. So Dr. Elliot goes to Bellevue to talk to Dr. Levy, and he's like, yeah, I think Bobby's killing people. (laughs) And Dr. Levy's like, oh, yeah, knowing full well. (laughs) Okay, I have to say... That scene, when you watch it the second time, is actually a good scene because the the guy playing Dr. Levy plays it very well mm-hmm. because he knows mm-hmm. that this guy is Bobby. Mm-hmm. This is, he's, I think he says later, this is the first time he saw Bobby in Present Bobby's, as male. Right, yeah. presenting as male. Yeah. But he's like humoring Bobby mm-hmm. the way he plays that scene. Doctor, I am not paranoid. Bobby has threatened me over the phone. She said she was going to hurt me. My patient was slashed to death and my razor's gone. Now, you don't have to be a detective to figure it out, do you? Come with me and uh, we'll talk to the police. I've already been to the police. But I didn't tell them about Bobby. I wanted to talk to her first. I wanted to be absolutely sure that it was her. But she wouldn't return my calls. I was hoping you'd be able to help. Um, Yes, I'll help. Oh, okay. Why don't you come back to the right. office with me, and we'll call what the police together. You don't ask that question. You say, oh, we're going <laughs> to, let's just go. Orderlies. <laughs> like, this is, at this point. Well, okay, the, again, they do say he calls the police immediately. Mm-hmm. And then fucking useless porn star detective was, like, at a football game or something yeah. and didn't get the message. What I'm saying is they tried to do the, what the fuck was that terrible movie that we watched part of? Shutter Island? Was that that bullshit? Where they, like, 
<laughs> entertain Leonardo DiCaprio for three hours. I was just like, why are we doing this? We should just probably just deal with just this. Just put him in a straight like, jacket. We should just deal with now. this. <laughs> <laughs> so I felt like that. <laughs> so it seems to be, and I don't know if De Palma was doing but it, it definitely doesn't seem, it was not the most glowing uh, representation of therapy or mental health care or anything. Uh, no. But. So I do think that that scene you mentioned where Dr. Elliot and Liz are watching the same Phil Donahue segment, I thought that was really well done. That was really well done. It's one of multiple times that uh, De Palma utilizes a sort of a split screen right. between the two characters. And. I mean, De Palma just in general loves that split screen thing. I don't think there's another director before or after who has used it as much. Mm. But especially in a movie like this where it, it is about split personality right. is what it's really about. And also where there's there's a lot of like doubling in mm-hmm. this movie of characters that are doubled. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's used really well. Yeah, I think in both scenes Liz is at um, her vanity and there's a mirror so there I think it's a two it's a right it's a winged right so you see so basically you see her reflection mm -hmm. twice in the mirror and the tv is on in the background Mm -hmm. and then on his side of the screen the same tv program is playing there's a mirror on his desk I believe right we see him reflected I think it's a full-length mirror. I think he's Mm. seated, but what we see is his reflection in the mirror, and it's a beveled mirror, so again, his image Mm -hmm. is doubled Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really really a nice shot. Yeah, yeah. And that is, I guess, if we weren't looking for it, like, these are our little clues as to, like, that Donahue program, obviously, if you didn't already know, you would be asking, why are we spending time on this? Mm -hmm. And again, like, watching the movie a second time, there's lots of stuff. With especially with the mirrors yes. and Elliot in the mirrors. Yes, and he does a lot of like confronting himself in the mirror. Exactly, like, he'll look at himself in the mirror. Yeah, um, when when he gets the call from the detective saying that Kate is dead, he sort of jumps and then he sees himself in the mirror mm-hmm. and kind of like, oh, you did that. Yeah, but it's yeah, yeah, it, it's actually really well done, but it's you know in service to something terrible. Yes, <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right, where the hell are we in this story? Um. So Bobby is now stalking Liz because Liz saw her murder Kate yeah. in the elevator. And so there's a little bit of a cat and mouse there. And this is where Liz loses me a little bit. So, <laughs> Oh, this is where you lose sympathy for Liz? A little bit of sympathy for Liz. You don't like people who are, act stupidly in these movies. Well, but also she makes a calculation that is interesting. Um, so, yes. So she goes to see another one of her clients and... She gets in a cab to head home. She sees that Bobby is watching her. Mm-hmm. And so Bobby starts to follow her in the cab. We think... It's more complicated. Okay, yeah, we'll right. We later. think it okay. is Bobby right. following her. Yes. Which... Yes. <laughs> um, see, this is why this movie... Like, you can't even talk about this movie because... So, yes. She sees which, who she thinks is Bobby following her. Right. And so she has the cab basically drive erratically across the city of New York to get away right. from who she thinks is Bobby. And then she stops the cab and is like, okay, I'm going to get out and run. Which... <laughs> At the subway. If someone is chasing you in a car and you're in a car, just stay in and keep yeah. going in the car. Why are you this getting is, out of the this, car? This is where I knew you were into the movie because you started yelling at her for doing like, stupid things. That's why you get in the like, car. That's why you get in the car. So she goes down into the subway, and who we think is Bobby is following her, and she makes a calculation. Yes, and here we have the incidental racism I was mentioning. So on one end, you have murderous Bobby. Yeah. That she knows to be a murderer. Yep. On the other end, you have 
a group of black men. Yeah. Minding their own fucking business. Yes, they are. Until she rudely, like, just tries to bury herself inside, <laughs> inside right. her little group. She she uses them for protection. Yes. She goes right up to them. She's literally leaning into yes. them yes. to the point that they get irritated. Like, why is this Why are woman? you doing this? And right. then they go on to, you know, live into all of the stereotypes that... Yeah. Like, of like, oh, well, now we're going to, you know, rape and beat you, basically. Right, exactly. Am I bothering you? Nah, you ain't bothering me. Good. But you're bothering me. She's bothering you, Sonny? Yeah, that's right. This bitch is bothering me. Well, what are you going to do about it, I'm going to break her fucking ass. Hey, why break it when we can fuck it first, huh? Hey, lady, where you going? Look, I don't want to crowd you guys. What are you doing down here if you didn't want to crowd us? Give me a break. And so she runs from the black men. And so it's just, did we need that? Did that, did it need to be a choice between, oh, scary black men or the murderous? I just. No, no, we did not. I just didn't. So that's where Liz lost me. I was just like, all right, well, now you, you I don't care for you so much. And I don't, because <laughs> you, you made that calculus really quick in your head. Mm-hmm. So she gets on the train, still thinks that Bobby is chasing her. We see Bobby on the train. Liz is running through the train cars, fleeing the group of black men. Right. Runs into Bobby. <laughs> right. Who? Has her straight razor. Has her straight razor. And I gotta say, that's one of several times in the movie, Bobby poses a little too long with that straight yeah, razor. Yeah, it's always a... Bobby holds yeah. that straight razor yeah. up before actually striking. She wants you to see it. She does that at the end of the movie, too. Yeah. And if, if she was a little quicker on the draw, she... No, no, but you gotta see it. It has situations. to gleam in the light. Yeah, no, and she should have just, just cut her. And then you strike. Should have just cut her. But luckily, <laughs> somehow, <laughs> Peter is there with Mace that he made at home. <laughs> Homemade Mace. And sprays the it's shit like out Inspector of Bobby. Gadget. He's got everything. Which how everybody in there wasn't blind because it was a lot. <laughs> he sprayed a lot of it. And I don't know, but uh, successfully sort of got Bobby to run away. Um, right. And he saved the day there. Okay, so let's go. I mean, again, we're not really trying to avoid spoilers no. here. So let's look at the co- very complicated confluence of events that had to happen here. Mm-hmm. So the First person chasing Liz, we later learn... Is actually a cop. Is actually a cop. Just exactly Betty, like Bobby for some reason. Who looks exactly like Betty. Bobby. Bobby. <laughs> Betty looks like Bobby. <laughs> she chased Liz until Liz got out of the cab. Mm-hmm. And then at that point... And let's make it very clear, De Palma cheats all the yeah, fuck over yeah, the place. Because yeah. we have seen, while that chase was going on, we had cut briefly to Elliot in his office mm-hmm. on the phone or something. There's a scene there that there's really no other reason for it to be there except to make you think Elliot, Elliot can't possibly Bobby, be Bobby. Yeah. Right. Okay, so Betty the cop is chasing Liz. Liz thinks it's Bobby. Elliot's in his office. She gets to, uh, right on the time she gets to the subway, somehow now, Bobby is there. That's yeah. The, on the train. That's Bobby. That's actually Bobby. Right. Who had to have been following Liz somehow from where at starting at what point, we don't know, mm-hmm. but gets there at pretty much the exact same time that she loses Betty the cop. Mm-hmm. So that all seems to be one seamless sequence of events. Yep. And then Peter... Mm-hmm. How does Peter say? Oh, Peter was watching, yeah, Dr. Elliot's office. Elliot's office and saw Bobby come out and followed Bobby, and that led Bobby to the train. Right. 
Not at all. It's just pure audience manipulation yes. going on here. Yes. And it works. Does I it? guess. Sort of. Because we're struggling talking about it, <laughs> and it probably doesn't make any sense to anyone listening to it right now. They're like, what the fuck? No, unless they've watched the movie, and even then, probably not. Okay, but now now the important thing is that Liz and Peter are a little team, mm-hmm. a little detective team. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't seem to think much of Peter. I, I'm sensing some resistance to you on, you're not, you don't have a lot of interest in Peter. So part of that is my prior association with Peter is from the movie Christine. <laughs> So I just have I see him as a weird creepy dude. He, he was he was a creepy little dude in that movie. Um, he's he's a creepy little dude. He's in this a creepy movie. little, but it's like he's he's not even creepy. He's just a nerd and he's you oh, know he's awkward. Got a surprising arsenal of stalker tools at his he disposal. Do, he does have that. Yes. And again, Peter as the De Palma stand-in, and also just the way this movie is obsessed mm. with movie making and voyeurism and all of that. Everything Peter does is like movie director stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when he's setting up his camera and setting up his shots and he's zooming in through his lens. He's got a thing around his neck that's like the viewfinder that Mm -hmm. directors wear Mm -hmm. in his lair. He's got all these diagrams on his wall of like camera angles and set, like set designs. (laughs) Like he's got the spacing. Like it's, it's all like he's making a movie. Yeah. But sorry, go ahead. You were, you were talking about Peter. Yeah, I don't have anything else to say about Peter. Um, yeah, so he's just, you know, a son who really loved his mom, who is very adamant that the man living in his house is not his father, is his stepfather. Yes. His father was killed in Vietnam, Vietnam. which is a, yeah. Yes. Nice little touch there. Mm-hmm. And is, you know, determined to find the person that murdered his mother. And so, yes, he sets up a camera outside of Dr. Elliot's office. He and Liz work together to break into Dr. Elliot's office to get access to his client list his right. client list so that they can identify you know who was the person that would have left the office at the time of the murder etc so he and liz developed this plan that she will basically go in and try to seduce dr <laughs> elliot okay okay again why is that the plan again it seems like a real leap she shows up to that office with like a black trench coat mm-hmm. and under it she's got this like black Fredericks of Hollywood style yeah. lingerie. That's what she wore. To the, so this was the plan. No, there's a top all along. There is a top. Okay, but no bottoms. But no bottoms. Yeah. Right. So yes, and she says something to that effect when they're on the couch, sort of hatching the plan. She's like, "Oh, I'm going to put my ass on the line." So I guess they meant that quite literally. That <laughs> uh, that you know she would go in and use her feminine wiles, and you know Peter as De Palma would be outside with binoculars, right, watching, watching, mm-hmm. you know, as the voyeur. Someone's always watching in. This Someone's movie. always watching. So yeah, she goes to Dr. Elliot's office and they have this little, you know, flirty thing. What sort of men turned you on? A mature, doctorly type. Like you. Are you sexually attracted to me? Yes. Are you? Attracted to you? Mm-hmm. Yes. Then this isn't a social visit, is it? You've come here for help, and my job is to offer you emotional assistance. How about some sexual assistance? Do you want to fuck me? Oh, yes. Well, why don't you? Because I'm a doctor and... Fucked a lot of doctors. And I'm married. Fucked a lot of them, too. Don't you think we're getting off the point? 
Do you mind if I take off my coat? Where again, she says, you know, in parallel to what Dickinson said at the beginning of the movie, she's like, do you find me attractive? Yeah. Do you want to have sex Well, with even me? before that, she starts out telling him this nightmare she mm-hmm. had, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And it's a rape fantasy. Yes, yes. Which again parallels Kate and her mm-hmm. little rape fantasy at the beginning of the movie. I guess that's part of the seduction that she's telling him this I story. I suppose... Which also goes back to problems of, like, what does the female gaze look like through a man's eyes of, like, that women have these rape fantasies. Like, right. Every woman is looking to be taken and, you know. Right. Like, that you know, is that is a disturbing current yeah. that runs through yeah. this movie and through other De Palma movies. Mm-hmm. And it's the cop, in fact, at one point says to Elliot about Kate, was she looking to get killed? Mm-hmm. Did she want mm-hmm. to get killed? Is that why she was picking up strange men? Mm-hmm. Right. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Again, this male idea of women's fantasies and women's sexuality. Yeah. It's troubling. It is. <laughs> so, yeah, so she proceeds to do a strip tease, takes off her coat, takes off her shirt, and, again, was not wearing any pants um, or skirt or anything, and she has on this lacy black lingerie yeah. set with So, see, she's a pro. She wears black lingerie. The whole nine. Even white lingerie. The whole nine. She looks good. Mm-hmm. good oh, did I mention that's Brian De Palma's wife at the time? I did not know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I meant to tell you that, you too. Yes. <laughs> Awesome marriage, that must be. But um, they, they met on Carrie, because she's the... Yeah, she's, she's one of the, the main girls. Girl on Carrie. Yeah. yeah. So he pretty much gives her the same line of, you know, I'm a doctor and I'm married, and so... Which, is he married? We don't see any evidence that he's We never see any evidence married, that he's married. Um, so I'm going to say no. Okay. <laughs> Just... he's married to Bobby in his mind. I don't know how that works. Possibly. So she goes, she sort of says, okay, well, I'm going to go to the powder room, and, you know, if when I come back out, I hope that you've taken your clothes off and, you know, are ready to have sex with me. Um... <laughs> and then closes the door, and she's in his outer office mm-hmm. or whatever for like 20 minutes looking God. through all the drawers right. for this client because book. she gives him time to put on his full makeup yeah. and rig and everything yeah. so she's in there a long time looking for this damn appointment book yeah but yeah so he gets into his bobby drag right but we're not supposed to know that no because we see him start to get undressed but we think he's just going to get down with, right with liz right and he's gonna, okay this is an opportunity and then again one of these amazing confluence of events Peter has been watching outside the window in the pouring rain with his binoculars. We see him get attacked Mm -hmm. by a blonde woman. Mm -hmm. We think Bobby has attacked Peter. Mm -hmm. And then Liz comes out. She's found the information she was looking for. She comes out. The room is suddenly dark. And behind her is Bobby. Mm -hmm. So we're supposed to think Bobby has attacked Peter and then come into the office, done something with Michael Caine, presumably. It sounds like none of this fooled you, though. No, because I don't think it was filmed that straightforward. Because I feel like there was a point where we saw Peter outside being attacked and Bobby on the inside. So there was... Yeah, uh, I think you're right. So it was like, what the fuck is happening right now? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So wait, okay, let's back up. Did you know all along that Michael Caine... Was Bobby? Was Bobby. Yes. You did. Why? It just seemed pretty obvious. <laughs> like Scooby-Doo rules? Yeah. So like just he's like, the only he's, the only suspect? That's the dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kept calling his own phone service, basically, asking for his <laughs> own messages. So, but that... <laughs> it's just... <laughs> but that was supposed to throw you off. But it didn't. The fact that Bobby had her own answering service. Except and... that it didn't. And there were too many, like, looking directly at himself in the mirror, and it's like, okay, someone's, someone's not right here. Okay. Uh, so, yes. So, 
when we talk about like dualities and mirrors, there was that weird shot of there's Peter being out, attacked outside by w- someone we thought was Bobby, right. and then we see Bobby also inside attacking Liz, and so it's two Bobbies at the same time, and it's very weird. And then outside Bobby shoots inside Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> And it's just... Bobby number one. She's Bobby, she's Bobby number, number two. two. It's ridiculous. And so... And Michael Caine falls back. Michael Caine falls. And his wig falls off. And it's like, oh, okay, so that was actually Bobby. Then who the fuck is that outside? Yeah. That's the detective That's that somehow looks exactly like Bobby. That we have never seen before in the movie or heard anything about. And why is this person dressed exactly like Bobby? I, I still don't understand that part. Well, and here's... And again, this is where De Palma just cheats. Uh, every other time we have seen Bobby in the movie, mm-hmm. that was not Michael Caine running around in a way. It was, in fact, the actress who plays Betty, the cop. So, if we confuse those characters, it's not really our fault. They were played by the same actress. So, anyway, I thought this movie was over. <laughs> yeah, no, there's like 20 minutes It was left. not. <laughs> that really should have been it the really end of the movie been right the there. It was not. So, Liz goes back to porn star cop and is basically like, I just did your fucking job for you, dude. And, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's what I planned to happen. I sent you there to do that. That's when Dr. Levy sits down and is like, yeah, God. Bobby was, I, it's just, what the fuck did he say? That's when he goes into the whole explanation of when, you know, when Dr. Elliot becomes aroused, Bobby right. appears and murders people. He actually says, like, when his penis gets erect. Yeah, it's just, it's like, it was like some sort of trigger for his female. And that's just, his red flag. Just, no. The feminine Bobby has to destroy whatever brings out the masculine sexuality. Yeah. And that, Okay, that is a parody of the scene at the end of Psycho. Psycho, yeah. But it's an homage to that. I'm not sure there's anything more sophisticated going on there as far as Mm -mm. what De Palma is trying to say. Mm -mm. Um, I think De Palma was actually satisfied with that explanation. Well, and to then follow it up with a scene of Liz and Peter at this very posh lunch place. Yes, yeah. It was actually Windows of the World, the top of the World Trade Center. Ah, so seated in the middle of a couple that was having lunch, and then like a trio of older, I love that. elderly women who can clearly hear their conversation. There's one woman there who is literally clutching her. She's pearls about to pass out as she's listening to them discuss because Liz is going into great detail around the gender confirmation surgeries, and it's like the next step is surgery. A um, let me see if I can remember the exact word that Levy told me. Oh, yeah, a penectomy. Hmm. What's that? Oh, you know. They take your penis and slice it down the middle. Yeah, yeah, that's um, what I thought it was. Then, um, castration, plastic reconstruction, and the formation of an artificial vagina. A vaginoplasty to those in the know. I, uh, I thought Ellie just put on a dress. Oh, he did. And a wig, too. But you see, that's no good in bed when you got to take everything off. So it's this, again, it's the problem of people's interest mm-hmm. in gender confirmation surgery really is, like, the lurid details. It was like, right. why, does, why does it matter how? Why, does, why do you need to know the details? Right. Like, none of it, it's, it's this dehumanization of the process. And it's, so... Okay, so this is what there. Some critics view that as really what's going on in this movie is this kind of castration anxiety mm-hmm. being expressed. 
Um, there's two critics called Willow McClay and Caden Gardner. They're a trans woman and a trans man, respectively. That They have this, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but they've had this series of blog posts in which they have a conversation about trans representation in movies. Mm. It's really good. And they have a piece on, on Dress to Kill. And McClay talks about the connections with Psycho, etc., but says De Palma runs into this gigantic problem of mixing the absurdity of the late-act plot twist from Psycho with real-life problems transgender people have. Norman in Psycho was never actually a transvestite, but Robert Elliott is canonically transgender, and De Palma uses that as a crutch for his worst tendencies as a director towards things like castration anxiety, the femme fatale, and domination. And then she says, you know, throughout De Palma's films, and I don't, I'm not familiar enough with his oeuvre to speak to this, but she says in his treatment of transgender women, we, meaning transgender women, are the great American nightmare, the total destruction of the male body, the malleability of our flesh into that of a woman's is horrifying to him, or at least perversely interesting. In the cinema of De Palma, if the body of a woman is the ultimate act of cinematic ecstasy, then the body of a trans woman is the total destruction of orgasm. And I think that's, I think there's something there. I mean, like you said, the fa- that scene between Liz and Peter, where they're discussing it, mm-hmm. that's all they're discussing. Yeah. Is cutting off, then they cut off the penis, then they remove the balls. It's all just the very graphic, right. physical transformation of the body. So I think that's interesting. I think combining that with this sort of, and I think one of the other critics mentioned, talking about reactions against second wave feminism, and you have these two women who are sort of claiming their own sexuality mm-hmm. and being sexually aggressive and seeing that as a threat to the masculine, right? So then again, you have this, they need to be destroyed. I think there's a lot of fairly twisted psychosexual stuff going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. None of which has anything to do with the actual reality of, of trans people. No. And it's, I mean, we've talked about this before. We talked about it with your favorite movie, Sleepaway mm-hmm. Camp which had a lot of the same problems. Horror in general has had this problem. I mean, going psycho. Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Terror Train. Uh, There's a terrible Bruce Willis movie called Color of Night that is fairly similar to this. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a movie called In Dreams. I think Robert Downey Jr. is the surprise transgender woman in that. This is a recurring theme. Mm And I think you get this defense of it by saying, well, they they weren't really transgender, right? Mm, mm -hmm. This is Norman and Psycho wasn't really transgender. Um, Hannibal Lecter says that about Buffalo Bob in Silence of the Lambs, that he's not a transgender woman. He just thinks he is or Mm -hmm. just wants to be, Mm -hmm. etc. Which is a pretty ineffectual (laughs) defense. Especially when there are not representations of there is not representation of actual transgender right. people in movies. Right. That the the record on that is so terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can sort of see, and I'm not saying this is right. I can see how people like De Palma get there, right? Because it's in horror, in mysteries, and even in comedy, it all re- relies on the reveal, mm-hmm. right? And all playing games with identity and you know, you can have a suspect, oh, we know the killer's a woman, but then, oh, surprise, it turns out that the man was the woman. Like, that, I think that's the level of thinking that leads to this. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it has any more sinister motive than that, mm-hmm. but that doesn't excuse it. No, it doesn't. And it's, anytime that there's a marginalized narrative overlaid with that, there's a responsibility around that that right. I don't think that you can escape, right? And so it's like, it's not just, this is not 
you know, Scooby-Doo or, oh, God, it was the, you know, the businessman the whole time. <laughs> right, and exactly. this, this is like well, the, So, you know, the trans experience is a real experience and it and historically has been defined by fear and misunderstanding. And so you don't get to just use it as a trope in a film because we as society, most of us, have not developed any sort of sophistication around that. Like, even it's just... Right. And I don't know that we ever will. Because it's still, if you put a black person as the villain in a horror film, like there's still this right. all of these layers to that. Well, that's, and, like, the that's thing. A, it's, so it's just like it's the real world consequences. Right, like you can't subtract if, those things. If every representation of gender nonconformity mm-hmm. that is available to the mainstream public is of a psycho murderer, that's a problem. Right. In like you just said, the same way that you know, and this is. That's why I'm distrustful of anybody who claims, oh, I'm not racist at all. Mm-hmm. It's, you can't possibly right. be not racist. Like, I grew up watching movies and TV in the 70s and 80s, shit like this, where the only black people in the movie mm-hmm. were murderous, rapist thugs that were going to chase me on the subway right. and try to kill me. Right. Right. You can't see all of that and take all of that in and not have that form your concept of how the world really is. Well, and even to just like, let's say, okay, it's not, it doesn't have to be murderous and violent. It's still this idea of like, there's this inherent subterfuge or deception or trick mm-hmm. in transgender people. Like, they're trying to fool you. It's like, no. Or even the whole dual idea. <laughs> right. like, like, oh, I just, have two people fighting like, no. inside of me. No. They know who they are. Right. Um, and they're not trying to... And so this idea of, like, it's about the reveal, which, again, let's take away all the, the crazy, oh, murderous danger stuff. There's still the obsession with who are you really? Like, right. you, I feel like you're hiding something. Or the fascination with how transgender people present, right? right? So this idea of, like, the obsession with the body, the obsession with mm-hmm. the surgery, the obsession with, okay, well, how are you dressing, and are you presenting as X, Y, or Z? And can you pass? Can you pass? Right. And so even if you take away, like, oh, they're not, quote-unquote, an inherent danger, it's still this suspicion around their identity, and that's just as dangerous. And so, so there's all that. There's also this weird, which is through film for a very long time, of... Men have a, y'all got to deal with your shit because it's like (laughs) deep, intense attraction to women, but also fear of women Uh and fear of becoming a woman. Right. Which that's kind of where I was going with that thing about feminism and the fear of, this like demasculation. And so uh, it's like, yeah, y'all got to deal with your shit. (laughs) See a therapist, but not Dr. Elliot. So there was, I said, around the time of this movie, there was not a lot of mainstream discussion about these issues, but this was a piece I found in a magazine called TV Tapestry, which was TV Transvestite. The magazine was later called TVTS, and then I think it was the Transgender Tapestry. I'll link to it in the show notes. This was from 1984. A trans woman named Haley Tiresias wrote an essay discussing several films, including La Cage à Folle, which is the French version of The Birdcage, mm-hmm. Tootsie, Victor Victoria, and The World According to Garp. And she said, from my point of view, Dress to Kill is not only a generally pernicious film, it is also a film which presents a serious threat to an already misunderstood minority, the gender dysphoric. And, you know, basically making the point that transgender people are the victims of crimes, they are not exactly. the perpetrators of crimes. Yeah. Interestingly, the only one of those movies she liked, and I think the Willem McClay and Caden Gardner say this too, is World According to Garp, which we watched. Mm. The depiction of Roberta Muldoon mm-hmm. by John Lithgow in mm-hmm. that movie um, is the rare example of 
a character who's actually, gets to be a human being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was thinking about that. I mean, just in terms of like representation matters, that movie, World According to Garp, is probably where I first had my impressions of transgender people mm. formed or changed from whatever God knows what they were before mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. from shit like Dress to Kill. Um, so yeah, that, it matters. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, the where piece were we? of shit film is still not over. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we need to get at least one more gratuitous shower scene in. Except that we didn't. Uh, so, in explaining Dr. Elliot's quote-unquote mental illness, Liz asks, okay, so what happens to him now? And everybody just sort of looks at each other awkwardly and is like, well, what the fuck does that mean? Right. Uh, and then we find out that he's in Bellevue. Uh-huh. Which... So, we get a scene in Bellevue. <laughs> I just can't with this movie. And first of all, I don't know if that's what Bellevue was really like. If it like. was, like, That was like an 18th Christ. century yeah, that was terrible. mental asylum. That was terrible. Where all, everybody's zombies wandering around. Like, it was horrible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think that was probably very accurate. Yeah. No lights. Everybody's, like, soiled. And just, it, was, <laughs> right. it was funny. So then, you know, we see the nurse going by and checking on the bed. And she gets to Dr. Elliot's bed. He chokes her the fuck out. <laughs> um, and starts to undress her. Uh-huh. And again, we get this very just ludicrous <laughs> shot of, you know, the slowly unzipping her nurse's yeah. uniform and revealing her underwear and her garter. Her laundry. Again, this very elaborate laundry. Very elaborate laundry. I'm guessing most For a nurse hospital nurses like a are not wearing any of their in outfits. Bellevue. Yeah, no. But then we pan up. In what is a great shot. It is a great shot, but it's... That does not happen. <laughs> All of the like patients of Bellevue are just sort of looking up, down up on the next in, level. Like the next the, are looking right. down at Dr. Elliot and like hooping and hollering yeah. and just it's again a, just the voyeurism. It's a and, really uh, somebody's troubling always watching scene. And, yeah. So Dr. Elliot breaks out of Bellevue apparently by dressing as this nurse, which that shouldn't happen, <laughs> um, and shows up at the home of Peter, where Liz is also staying. Right. We get these shots of, of him outside the house mm-hmm. that are very Halloween. We like yes. hear his breathing yeah. as he's... And he's peeking through the window, right. so we're seeing inside. And Liz is, of course, about to take a shower because everybody's showering all the fucking time yeah. in this movie. Mm-hmm. And she is very slowly sort of running the water over her we've, legs. We've come and full circle back and to the opening of the back movie. At shower she turns and sees the ugly nurse's shoes standing at the door and she realizes that um bobby has broken out of bellevue and has come to attack her so she goes to the medicine cabinet and there's a straight razor in the medicine cabinet yep so and again gonna... we've got all the mirrors yep. she has to open the mirror right. and then we've got the very shiny reflective yep. surface and then of we the realize razor. that bobby has stepped out of the nurse's shoes as a way to trick <laughs> is such a just like really it's again. It's like you. Ha- the only way that works is if Bobby knew that she could see that that knew that she was in yeah. a movie. <laughs> that the camera was going to show this much of her shoes and only that much, and that's what Liz would see from her perspective. Yes. Like it's ridiculous. So then, yeah, Bobby slashes the shit out of Liz. Uh, but it's a dream. <laughs> Because, again, we have to go back to the ending of Carrie. Right, where she wakes up and she thinks that the hand is coming out of the <laughs> yeah. fucking grave to grab her. And so, yeah, and so Bobby runs to her bedside and she's freaking out just like the chicken Carrie freaked out when her mom came in. Um, so there's a little bit of, like, dude, get some new shit. Um, right, right, which is a constant frustration with Devama. So, yeah, so then finally that's the thing. Because it's not even his shit. It's like no. Hitchcock's shit, half of it. So it, it's that's that's the end. And it's... <laughs> yeah. 
But you enjoyed this movie. Like, I enjoyed this movie. It's silly, except for the parts that are like, that. We that's, no, we're not there yet. We can't laugh at that yet. I don't know that we will ever be able to laugh at that. So, but no, I think that there were some beautifully shot scenes that taken out of that film, like just the museum scene. Right. You know, even like the split screen with the Phil Donahue thing, like that was mm-hmm. well shot. The elevator murder, well shot. The film as a whole is <laughs> as a ridiculous <laughs> and dangerous. Yes, I would concur with all of that. So. Okay, well, so do you do you want to watch more Brian De Palma movies? No, I'm good. <laughs> Are you glad we watched this one? I don't know that I would say glad. I mean, like I said at the beginning, there are scenes that I appreciate as a viewer. But do I feel in any way sort of edified by this film? No. So I could sort of take or leave it. Okay. I think if I wanted to play in this playground, it may I would maybe go more Argento. Because it, I think the visuals are a little bit better. Is that the difference? Is that the only difference? Because actually, uh, Willow McClay says that in, in one of her pieces. She says, you know... I don't like De Palma. I do like Argento. Mm. I realize that's a contradiction because mm-hmm. Argento's doing all the same stuff. Mm-hmm. And she basically says, I'm okay with the contradiction. I mean, Argento's shit is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But maybe the absurdity is cranked up just enough that I, it's easier to just enjoy it as that. Mm-hmm. And the visuals are a little bit more off kilter than... I feel like... And I haven't seen that many Argento mm-hmm. movies. I feel like it's a little less lecherous. Yes. And it feels like it might hate women a little less. I think so. Like, I don't get a I hate women, Mm -hmm. I'm afraid of women vibe Mm -hmm. from Argento. Mm -hmm. I do get it from this movie. Yeah. So, neither of them are going to be ones that I'm like, let's put in this film and watch this real quick. Um, But if I have to choose, I'd probably go Argento then. Okay. Then De Palma. Except for I, Carrie will always be in my uh, my collection. Crazy Carrie. Crazy Carrie. Even though that is really about like fear of, you know, female sexual awakening and all and ownership and all that. But it's just, it's such a good. So. Plus she, she pretty much gives it to everyone who deserves it. At the end of that movie, so. Including her mother. So. <laughs> Any final thoughts on Dress to Kill? No. None at all. This shallow masterpiece. I, I still pause on the word masterpiece, but. <laughs> shallow and interesting in spots. It's probably the best we could have hoped for out of this one. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Unenthusiastic Critic. Nikki and I are still on a bi-weekly schedule at the moment, but to me that just means we have time to watch two movies before our next installment. Nakia, it has occurred to me that we have yet to have a discussion about superhero movies, even though the genre has basically dominated the 21st century. And you made the mistake recently, while we were flipping channels, of mentioning that you haven't seen any of the 80s, 90s Batman movies. So we are going to watch the film that launched the franchise, Tim Burton's Batman from 1989, and the film that killed the franchise. Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin from 1997. I did not agree to do two movies. <laughs> this is a gotcha moment, and I'm really uncomfortable right now. Two, two weeks between episodes, I we don't have time care. to watch two no, movies. No, I definitely did not sign up for two of these things. This, this is going to be fun. So the only thing I care about is that Prince did the soundtrack. Right, so you should be you should be very excited about this. No, I, so I listened to the soundtrack, and that's all I really Yeah, but you need to hear it in context. I really don't. In. I really don't. <laughs> 
somewhat ridiculous context. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can subscribe to the podcast, download earlier episodes, or make a donation to support the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic, and in any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a movie Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch. I did not agree to do two movies. You did. I did. We had a whole conversation. And I said that I was not doing two movies. You didn't say that. Though. I did. I said, we, we agree that we would not do double features, and you are now reneging on that agreement. I remember it differently. You remember it wrongly. It's going to be fun. No, it's not going to be fun. Bat nipples. I don't I don't want that. And this is what's going to happen is I'm going to sit through four plus hours of Batman and we're not going to have anything to say about it beyond bat nipples. <laughs> Do you need more than that?